And you're listening to Policing Matters on PoliceOne.com. I'm your host, Jim Dudley. Well, today, uh, I don't think of a bigger topic. I can't think of a bigger topic than the use of force in policing today. And we see examples every day in the news. Not the greatest examples, but uh, there was a recent headline that talked about a 99 point something percent of success in use of force uh, de-escalation by the SFPD recently. And I'm talking today with Vaughn Klein, the Force Science Institute editor of Force Science News, director of consult, uh, consulting division, and uh, legal expert as well in force. And today we're going to talk about the key issues in use of force. And welcome to the show, Vaughn. Oh, good. Thank you for having me. I appreciate this. So what do you see as as the most pressing issues in, in use of force today? Yeah, so I, right now there's a, there's a scholastic debate raging about this concept of officer-created jeopardy. And what I'm noticing about this is there's a shift from holding suspects responsible for the consequences of their bad decisions to looking for any way to blame the the attack on the police officer so what's interesting about officer created jeopardy is like like most theories there's there's a kernel of truth there are things officers can do to avoid violence um, now historically and you'll know this we would talk in terms of officer safety tactics and so if i can just lay a little bit of a a little bit of a structure to this conversation will make more sense we look at threat assessments through a lens of intent, ability, means, and opportunity. So if you have probable cause to believe that the suspect has the intent to commit death or serious bodily injury, the ability, the means, like a weapon, and the opportunity, then we would say imminent jeopardy exists. Well, of course, officers are able to respond with deadly force when there's an imminent threat of death or serious bodily injury. So that's that's a starting point for those not familiar with what I call the IAMO acronym, intent, ability, means, opportunity. And a lot of your listeners will have heard it as ability means jeopardy or capability, um, intent and jeopardy. So it's all sort of the same thing. Uh, the reason I bring that up is when we would learn about uh, officer safety tactics, if you look at the tactics, they all were designed to mitigate or avoid one of those four conditions, intent, ability, means, or opportunity. So de-escalation would be to mitigate uh, a homicidal intent or assaultive intent of the suspect. We basically um, wanted to do what we could to influence their intent to hurt us. Right. So that's that's an officer safety tactic. It was good for the officers. Um, you know, George Thompson of verbal judo used to say, um, you know, it's not enough to be good. You got to sound good. You got to look good. <laughs> um, but but he understood the idea of of uh, thinking for someone in a way in which they would think for themselves under better circumstances. So that's one thing, one tactic or one strategy that police were using to mitigate intent, right? So that's an easy one. Ability is every time you uh, put somebody in handcuffs or you do a physical restraint, you're mitigating their ability to harm you. Uh, means is when you deny them access to weapons. When, on domestics, when police officers keep somebody out of the kitchen, when you look at, again, intent, ability, means, and opportunity, Police could point to that and say, well, the reason I'm giving them the order to stay out of the kitchen is I want to deny them access to a means of assaulting us. And then maybe the most difficult one is, is 
um, opportunity when it comes to the officer creative jeopardy theory and that's because you know even if someone has a knife even if they say I want to kill you even if they're upright and mobile right they have means if they're behind, if you're behind cover if you have sufficient distance whatever that might be you're denying them opportunity well all of these were officer safety tactics we learned to shut our doors quietly when we roll up on calls to deny opportunity to die people um, awareness of our presence right? we would uh, stand to the side of a door when we knock on it for example to deny people opportunity even if they have the intent the ability and the means to hurt us we're doing what we can to control that final piece mm. well what's happening now in the officer created jeopardy arena or discussion is anytime an officer unsuccessfully or is ineffective at controlling intent, ability, means, and opportunity of another human, there are those who want to hold the officer accountable for that. Sure. And so we hear things like if an officer could have taken cover but didn't and was shot, that the officer caused the suspect to shoot them. If an officer stands in front of a car, the officer causes the suspect to accelerate into them. And so what you're seeing is if you look at every aspect, intent, ability, means, opportunity, if at any point uh, the opposition could say the police were ineffective at controlling that aspect of imminent jeopardy, we're not going to shift the blame to the officer. Right. Well, when I say there's a kernel of truth to this, of course, if if an officer hands someone a knife, throws a knife at their feet and says, hey, pick it up, and then shoots them, that's truly officer-created jeopardy. Sure. Right. Um, and there are extreme examples where it's easy to be critical. So if you have someone inside a room by themselves with a knife saying, stay out, stay away, I'm going to kill myself type right. thing. Right. And an officer just walks in, opens the door, and approaches them, it's easy to be critical of that. Sure. Just say, to... to, to to ask the question, why now? Right. Why did you do it now? Why was it, I won't say necessary, but why was it reasonable to do that now? Um, because those type of scenarios on the far end of the spectrum are easy to anticipate. Mm -hmm. That's going to end up in a shooting, potentially. Sure. Um, unfortunately, now we get into the gray area where we know the standard for use of force is it must be reasonable. Reasonable people can disagree. There are uh, various reasonable options that, that officers can have. And so now, after the fact, with the benefit of 2020 hindsight, um, we can go back and look at every tactical decision that mm -hmm. a police officer made. Did they go left instead of right? Did they go fast instead of slow? Did they, did they create space and stand 30 feet away behind a car? Right. Which then we get to accuse them of failing to de-escalate because they, they just removed all of the de-escalation skills that they learned, which is you know, get close so that you can make eye contact and have effective uh, facial expressions and body language and right. they can hear you're changing the tone of voice. So we teach them all these skills that require personal contact mm -hmm. and then we say do it from 30 feet away. Right. Behind cover. Right. So there's always trade-offs. There's always costs. Yeah. And when when we look at force science, looks at a use of force case, we're one, always cognizant of the trade-offs. And Okay, so if you create space and distance, you might you might have a uh, a better reaction, right. reactionary right. gap or reaction time, but you there's a trade-off for the effectiveness of your mm -hmm. de-escalation skills, right? If you get close, the effectiveness of de-escalation may go up, but now you are within 
uh, you know, assault range. Right, right. So what we're always looking at when we look at policies and statutes and actual cases that are being evaluated is where does the human come into play? Where does the reality of a human behind the badge come into play? Right, right. And so we'll look at things like, well, we'll just look at, you know, one I look at with some curiosity is anytime I see, you know, police must use the minimum amount of force necessary. And I think, well, how would they know what that is in advance of using the force? Right. They don't know the level of resistance they're going to achieve. Um, when the suspect gives up. Yeah, when he's going to give up. And the suspect always gets a vote. So we, <laughs> we, we look at that, and, and it's amazing to me that the courts have gotten it right for so long when they say, look, reasonable people can disagree. The, the, there isn't a single best way to do it. Officers are not required to try lower levels of sure. force and hope for the best. Right. These are consistent messaging we're getting from the courts, and yet we now have legislators and policymakers injecting what may very well be uh, standards that are incapable of being met by Impossible. So in California, we have 835A of the Penal Code, which says just what you said, that there is, you would never be the deemed the aggressor once there's opposition from the suspect that there is no obligation or duty to retreat. And now we're changing the narrative altogether when we look at the national objective reasonableness standard that you're talking about. Now in California, they say necessary. So it opens the door wide open to the Monday morning quarterbacks who, yeah. who, who scrutinize every one of those things you just talked about. Right, and, and you know, I, I frequently say the law recognizes that reasonable people disagree and and even among police officers even among even among experts in use of force um there's going to be disagreement and the law allows for that mm -hmm. you know and we can tighten things up so what what i don't want you know your listeners to hear is that i i 100 percent believe that tactics matter sure. and officer safety um should remain a priority um so Yes, we should do things to influence intent. We should be de-escalating. We should be right. maintaining appropriate distances. We should be waiting for, for back officers but when, when you can. But what's, what is lost in a lot of these conversations, once we get away from police officers and those who are in the arena, those who are making these sure. decisions, is this concept of tactical uncertainty. It, officers are engaging in educated judgments. I like to say educated best guesses, but I've had, you know, Laura Scary told me stop saying that. <laughs> so I'll say, you know, educated judgments, and, and I think that's right, and that's based on their education, training, experience, and reasonable inferences. And two officers engaging the same suspect are going to have different education, training, experiences, and make different inferences, and that's okay. Sure. They just have to be within that realm of reasonable, and we can always tighten that up. We should always be looking at ourselves to get better, um, and and we've done that with with various new technologies, with new strategies. Uh, I think one of the one of the most promising things I've seen is is a culture change, where you know I I came up in the 90s working the street, and I remember my training officer saying, "Get in and get out." You're yeah. not their counselor, right? You know? Right. And now officers are getting permission to stay as long as they need to stay. Yeah have that conversation, actually let de-escalation work when it can. Right. Um, so I'm a huge fan of de-escalation. And, and you'll notice what force science is doing with 
the realistic de-escalation program is we're never allowing de-escalation to be separated from tactics. Sure. Tactics and de-escalation must always be integrated. And we call it realistic de-escalation because much like the psychiatric community, we recognize that not not everyone is able or willing to be de-escalated. Yeah, yeah. You know, right. No, the, the concept relies on the fact that you're dealing with someone who's rational, who will obey your commands or be reasoned with. And you know that's not always the case. That's right. And one thing I did see that's interesting, it goes to that the point I just made about spending as much time as you have, right? Discretionary time, as we analyze it, is, is when you have a reasonable amount of containment, right? You've limited them to a reasonable area of movement. And that includes, do you have appropriate backstops if things do go bad? Right. Are you denying them access to weapons, evidence, means of escape? So basically, letting them move around, but in a reasonable area of movement, that's, that's containment. Yeah. And it requires barriers, and it requires an officer who is willing to threaten and actually use force if that containment is going to be broke. So we, once we have containment, that's one element. The other one is control. Do you, are they actively engaged in crime? So... The best example of that is if you're at a domestic and, and you've got the guy contained in the house, you can sit and negotiate with him through a door or through a window unless he's in there continuing to assault his wife, mm -hmm, in which right. case you've got containment but you don't have control. Right. Um, or, and here's where it gets difficult. The, the amount of control, a reasonable amount of control, depends on what your community expects of its officers. So most communities don't expect officers to sit by and watch uh, a spouse get beat by their by their spouse. Sure. So you can make entry to stop that. Sure. But what about flushing drugs? What about criminal damage to property? Does your, is your community going to support an officer going in using force to prevent or stop the destruction of, of, of property or drugs? Well, historically, yeah. I mean, that was part of the governmental interest being served, right? right? right. So officers like, oh, you're not. I get to come in now, right? We have exigent <laughs> circumstances. I get to come in. Well, the discussion now is is uh, it's a it's a somewhat difficult balancing test between which has the greater risk of harm, waiting, or or the potential for use of force. Mm -hmm. And the answer to the, to the risk of harm has to do, we're not talking about physical, I'm talking about government interest or government harm. Hmm. So does your community want you to stop evidence being destroyed if it takes you to use force to do it? Right. Um, do they want you to use force to stop someone from hurting themselves? And we, that's another, I think, great culture shift where if someone's suicidal and only threatening themselves, it oftentimes makes less sense for the officer to confront and force a confrontation with someone who is suicidal because that then puts them in potential line of, of an assault themselves right. and they respond to that. And so now we have the courts interjecting and trying to make these decisions for us. Ahead of time, the Supreme Court just said, okay, we're not chasing people into homes for misdemeanors anymore or the DUI uh, continuation. Yeah. Um, is that force-based? Was the idea centered around force? Uh, you know, I don't know if it's force as much as you know, the Fourth Amendment talks in terms of reasonableness, whether it's use of force or a search or other seizure, sure. right? So I think the analysis is the same. It's it's what's the government interest being served versus the intrusion on the individual's rights. And so the court has simply done that balancing test for us. And and frankly, I appreciate that. My 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 advice to those who, who ask is, you know, have your politicians and your 
your civic leaders put down in writing what you want us to do and not do yeah the hard lines because they want to instead ask officers to engage in these proportionality analysis like you do the balancing test and we'll tell you if you got it right yeah right that's, and that's insane right because there's always going to be plenty of people who disagree with that balancing test and so for example and for the police we're already used to this like there are many jurisdictions that say officers do not engage in car chases just don't do it right right the the benefit is not worth the risk to to the community that's great put it in writing and then we just don't do it right right? there's no decision to be made where it gets difficult is when think about a foot chase well only chase them if it's if it's a legitimate government interest sufficient for the risk of chasing them. And you're like, what does that even mean? Yeah. And they're, you know, it's, it's highlighted under this proportionality analysis. But, uh, you know, people have asked me, I said, just, you know, it would be much easier to say, look, if you suspect the guy has a gun and takes off running from you, do not chase. Hmm. Now that's now many, many people, myself probably included, is going to find that to be, hard to swallow sure it's counter to what we believe yeah and it it ignores law and order interests it ignores rule of law it ignores social structures it ignores that you are the enforcement arm of of society right and so it is very difficult to imagine a scenario where the very person who you should be arresting you now have a mandate that if you suspect that they're armed, do not chase them because we as a society or we as a government, uh, well, yeah. uh, civic leaders have decided the benefit is not worth the risk. That's where point of capture use of force is greatest. Right. That's where the risk is highest. And we don't believe the trade-off is worth it. And it, in some ways it's hard to argue because you didn't have that guy 10 minutes ago. You made a left-hand turn instead of a right-hand turn, and since you went left, there he was. Right, right. You know, many, many things could have prevented you from ever crossing paths with that person. Right. Um, and you wouldn't have caught them anyway. <laughs> so what civic leaders are just simply saying is, let them go. Yeah. It's not worth the, the, the community outrage. It's not worth the buildings being burned. It's not worth... Which many, many reasonable people could disagree with that logic. I think there's strong arguments uh, to continue to chase bad guys, right. um, but I understand that the civic leaders are just coming to a different conclusion in their proportionality analysis. Well, so when I yeah, we've seen some of the cities say altogether no traffic enforcement stops, yeah. eliminating. And I think I mean the force being one of the issues, but I think also the race and equity of the fairness of pulling people over for traffic stops, whether they be for equipment or, vi- or traffic violations, and the government is looking out to say we're going to we're going to toss out whether the stop is based on the action or the race, and it's not going to be an issue anymore. I, I think it's crazy. Yeah. Well, what I would appreciate from those civic leaders who actually put that in writing, because I used to say, I mean, years ago, I would say put it in writing. Yeah. And then you get to own. The consequences of your decision, because I mean, we know that the policymakers do not have a personal stake in the outcome of their policy decisions. They don't suffer the consequences of good or bad policy, mm-hmm. um, at least not not personally. Now they might politically, you know, get hired, but what or get elected. But my uh, my sense is, great, you have the authority to be more restrictive than the Constitution 
you have you can be as restrictive as you want but put it in writing own it and then we all get to watch the crime rate yeah. if it goes up we know who to hold accountable sure. for that right um, but too often we see that it's the individual police officer being asked to do that balancing test and I and so I appreciate it if 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 these civic leaders come out and say don't do traffic stops okay right you get to you get to deal with the consequences of, of that decision but at least you've taken you've taken that proportionality analysis off the back of the individual officer because if they get it wrong which is completely subjective <laughs> um, typically there was little consequence maybe it was a policy violation um, but what we're seeing now increasingly is that you're going back to officer created jeopardy if if the decision makers believe that the officer got the, the balancing test wrong mm -hmm. um, now it's criminal charges not just civil but criminal right and now we're you know pushing for for elimination of qualified immunity which was a safeguard that allowed imperfect humans to operate in an imperfect world with imperfect information right in time restricted circumstances um, and what I laugh about when people ask about qualified immunity I say you know look at its simplest what qualified immunity says is if what the if it was obvious that what the officer did violated the Constitution if that was obvious we're gonna hold them accountable right that's already there that's there that's what if it's not obvious and reasonable people can disagree why would we hold them accountable civilly or criminally I want to get back to de-escalation in sure. a minute but first I'd like to take a second for our sponsor police one.com is the number one resource for your up-to-the-minute law enforcement news training and incident analysis our mission is to provide you with the information you need to better protect your communities and your safety. Becoming a Police One member is quick, easy, and free. Once registered, you will receive access to secure law enforcement-only training and video tips, articles and sections, and a subscription to our award-winning law enforcement newsletters. Go to policeone.com forward slash registration to sign up today. That's policeone, the number one, dot com forward slash registration. And we're back and I'm talking with Von Klein, Force Science Institute, Force Expert. And we talked about de-escalation at the beginning of the program, talked about the 99% de-escalation success in San Francisco. What do you think? Is that a true number can they have such wild success so if you're if they go well one they did um, and you know talking to them uh, in preparing to write that article um, our 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 instructors were overwhelmingly impressed with what they were doing it's the most sophisticated CIT training oh, uh, probably in the country and so and we know there's a lot of good ones out there um, we had the the privilege of training uh, then they came to our realistic de-escalation, about 20 of them came to our realistic de-escalation training course. Um, we don't take credit for what they did, but we're just incredibly honored that they saw value in, in the realistic de-escalation training and incorporated it um, in, in their training, but also in their post-use of force analysis. They're right. really trying to uh, capture, um, even in the cases where they had to use force, what was unique about those cases? Um, Dr. John Azar Dickens, one of our one of our instructors, a former police officer, a clinical psychologist, 
he developed what's called the TEB model. It's thoughts, emotions, and behaviors. And essentially what we've been encouraging officers to do is, is pay attention to whether that uh, the person you're dealing with has organized thinking, clear, rational thinking, because of course we can influence that. We can have conversations, we can change perspectives and add distinctions that will help them make better decisions, right? And to generate voluntary compliance. Um, or whether they have what one way of phrasing is basically uh, contaminated thinking or unclear thinking that could be the product of drug use, it could be the product of momentary rage, it could be the product of uh, personality disorders, it could be uh, uh, a, a more biologically driven or, or mental health um, uh, impact or influence. And so when when officers are looking at that, that's going to inform their strategy for de-escalation. It, in, it informs their word choice, it informs their body language, their proxemics, right, how close they stand to somebody or how far. It's going to inform how much time they're going to need to spend on the call. So we, we talked a little bit earlier, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to focus just on thoughts for a second. Well, actually, let me go for thoughts, emotions, and behavior. The, the emotions is whether it's high or low. Right? If they're extremely ra agitated, maybe we have to deal with, with lowering the emotional uh, presence first, or the emotional impact first, so we can have that rational discord. Because I'm fond of saying, and I didn't make this up, but you can't have a head conversation with someone having a heart moment. Right? If they're mad and they're enraged, we do this with our kids, right? Right, right. Um, you've got to get them back, calm down, to have that rational discussion with them. Sometimes if it's emotionally driven, you can do that. If it's, if it's biological, it might be more difficult. And then behaviors, is are they compliant or non-compliant? Uh, that goes back to containment and control. De-escalation is not always an option to even attempt if you don't have sufficient control over the individual because then you're not protecting the other government interests. And there are always competing government interests for the safety of the person you're dealing with, but also protection of property, protection of other people, protection of the officer. So that's, that's TEB, and I'll go back to the idea of the, uh, the, the thought, the contaminated thinking. It doesn't necessarily mean because they can't engage in rational thought that you can't de-escalate. And, and I want to be clear about that. De-escalation is not something we believe you do to somebody. Mm. De-escalation is, is setting the conditions that allow somebody to de-escalate themselves. They, re they maintain agency. Mm. They get to, to, to make their own choices. Now, when you're dealing with mental, mental health issues, what I've noticed is if you have containment and control sufficient that you could protect the other government interests, including yourself, then you have discretionary time. And with discretionary time, y you have options. Right? You have tactical options. And sometimes, and I saw this out of Washington State, they had a guy who had extreme contaminated thinking. He was on, he was a drug addict. I think he was on methamphetamines. But, but there's not going to be rational de-escalation going on. But they didn't need that. What they ended up doing was basically just containing him, making sure that the people walking down the sidewalk didn't come near him. So mm. instead of controlling him, they kept people away from him, and they let time take over. Hours. They spent hours with him on the street and until just physiologically he de-escalated. 
right? There were, the, the drugs took their turn. And, and people who deal with those in mental health crisis, they know that sometimes it's just time. You yeah. have to wait it out. Right, and if right. you can wait it out safely, then that's a legitimate option as well. And that goes back to my my first training officer would have said, absolutely not. Let's get, get him in handcuffs and get him yeah, out of here. Yeah. we got more calls. Which is a fair point, and it's not something I dismiss, And is that uh, you really should, as an officer, know what calls are holding, mm. the priority of the calls. Hey, right. dispatch, do we, are we holding calls? Um, it's because you, oftentimes the other government interests will actually be a priority over the uh, generating voluntary compliance. Right. Sometimes you got to force compliance right. because the other government interests demand it. And so that's one more balancing test. Sure. But the sophisticated officers are already doing that anyway Sure. when they make a decision whether to do a Terry stop or not. Mm -hmm. They look at their screen to see how many calls are holding because we all know when calls are stacking up, you don't want officers out there self-initiating calls. <laughs> <laughs> I'm on my way. Oh, yeah. I see something. They do the fun stuff. They leave the they leave the uh, admin work to the rest of the officers. So we're already used to checking sure. call priorities. But I mean, are, we're going to get pushback. I'm sure. You know, in San Francisco, we've got these really busy streets. We've got cable cars on rail. We have rail cars and. If we do a negotiation with somebody for two to three hours while cable cars back up, we're going to get a phone call. Yeah. So where's the balance there? Yeah, that's right. That you're exactly right. There is a balance that has to be struck. They and it's almost they almost always are doing it. They just need to know. Write that down. If you if you say the cable calls were back, cable cars were backing up. Um, that is a legitimate government interest. So it's law enforcement, but it's also order, right? It's law and order. Right. Um, that goes to the social order, and those are legitimate law enforcement um, priorities. And so if they're aware of those things and they're documenting those things, I mean, how many people, when they after they force compliance or before they even make contact, are co are conscious of the call load? Like, look, I can't be here all day. I got an officer, we got a you know injury accident that look of our backs on. I can't be here all day because we've got an officer calling for help right now. Um, those are legitimate considerations in this proportionality analysis. We're just not particularly doing a good job of, of adding that to our reports right, right. and having those discussions. Yeah. Um, and again, our civic leaders, especially those who are more concerned about equity um, goals, which is a legitimate government interest. It absolutely is. We would all love to see um, uh, people fairly represented across the board. And we want to reduce crime so we can reduce arrests. Right? Sure. We want to make sure that that there's um, that there's equality of opportunity and fairness in the system. Sure. Right? So I, I I think those are legitimate government interests. I think that it's easy to prioritize that over every other government interest right now. Mm. And I think you know in the world according to Bond Clean, you know Population One, I think that's that's ill-conceived. I think all of the other government interests are incredibly valuable, um, and I think we need to be focused on those as much. Um, but that's that's somewhat getting lost. So, yeah. So you know, I, in full disclosure, I did my 32 years with San Francisco PD. My two sons are both members of San Francisco PD, and uh, 
I, I really appreciated reading that article, and I encourage anyone to find They could probably find it on 4 Science News. Yeah, 4 Science News. Yeah, and we had it on social media. Um, I love telling that story. And, it, of course, there's the, the pushback has been... It's been very little pushback, but we encourage people to comment, and I try to <laughs> I try to email them back or call them and say, "Hey, I read your comment." Uh, and as irrational as some of these comments sound on paper, <laughs> every single time well, upon talking to the person, I realize they're very smart and and very considered. This was just their venting. They understand nuance, sure. and so I, I'm, I've made it a habit of calling them because it's always been it's always been um, a positive experience. But it, of course. If you don't arrest people, you're going to have a low use of force rate, right? The trade-off is, what did that do to your crime rate? What did that do to the other government interests, like we were talking about? Right, right. And maybe they just decided, that's okay. That's that's the balance we're willing to assume right now because we want to reduce use of force, period. Just reduce use of force. Sure. Well, stops, don't stop people. Don't arrest people. And don't require compliance with the law. And use of force will, will drop. Drop. Of course, we're then going to monitor the crime rates and victimization and that sort of thing to see whether the trade-off, whether the costs were worth that trade-off. So the pushback on the article in San Francisco was, yeah, the CIT program and their, the San Francisco police interaction with those in, in crisis very, very infrequently involves any use of force. That's a good news story. Sure. A lot of work is going into that. A lot of sophisticated um, critical incident responses go into that. However, if your goal is to remove someone who's carrying a gun from interacting with people in mental health issues, that's still not a good news story. Right. Because we don't want the police involved at all is, is, is huh. the argument. Right. And so for those who read that article and they're like, we don't care how effective the police are, we don't want the police engaging with the mental health population or those those experience mental health issues um, and so I saw some of that and some of the background I did some of the feedback is we want all civilian meaning non-police responses yeah because again from that mindset if there's no one there with a gun no one gets shot if there's no one there with handcuffs no one gets arrested and from a pure equity argument that makes sense right but we just don't know what the trade-off is going to be. And some would argue we absolutely know what the trade-off is. We're seeing it. We're seeing it in exploding homelessness rates. We're seeing it in exploding crime rates. We're seeing it in, ex, you know, ex, opiate overdose deaths. Absolutely, yeah. So, 700 last year in San Francisco. Yeah, uh, yeah. And so we're that that conversation is, I, I think, a lot of reasonable people are like, you know, come on, Vaughn. We absolutely know the cost of this type of approach. Well, great talking with you, Von Kleem, for Science Institute. Uh, we'll look at your articles, and we'll talk again soon. There's so many issues out there that, that uh, I'd love to talk to you about, about the gaps in force options, you know, the, the new ideas of bolo wraps and jujitsu and all these other things that, sure. that may be coming. I guess it's up to the electeds whether or not we can have them, but uh, at least we know they're they're in the wings waiting. So you've been a great guest. I've been trying to get you for a long time. I'm glad I finally caught up with you. Well, thank you for having me. I really appreciate that. Thank you. And thanks to our listeners. And uh, I hope you're safe out there and, and being smart with your decisions. Thanks for listening. If you want to drop us a note, you want to listen about uh, other issues or uh, 
great individuals like Von Kleem here, uh, send us an email at policingmatters at police1.com. That's policingmatters at police1.com. I'll get back to you or somebody from the Policing Matters team. And uh, thanks for listening. Take good care. <laughs>